Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Robert Andrew Wagner is a writer, teacher, and performer, teaching through stories, telling stories through songs as frontman and chief songwriter and lyricist for the band, The Little Wretches. Wagner is a survivor of cancer, holds a master's degree in instruction and learning, and teaches and counsels at-risk teens. Robert, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Oh, thank you. It was kind of cool listening to you read that bio. Like, oh, <laughs> maybe I am somebody after all. Yeah, it's a great bio, really, in all seriousness. It's, it's, it's a great bio and very concise, but tells us a lot of amazing things about you. Before we jump into the cancer journey, and I normally start there, but before that, tell us about The Little Wretches. I'm so um, curious. What genre well, the, of music? The Little Wretches wouldn't exist except for my cancer experience, you know, the uh, when I was a kid, I had a lot of bad moments when I was growing up. And uh, at one point, you know, I was one of those alienated teenagers that hated everybody and everything. But the only thing I didn't hate was music. And I mm -hmm. saw, and I, I'm a pretty talented writer. So all I wanted to be was, you know, the right songwriter playing in a band. But, you know, in order to play in a band, you have to get along with other human beings. So uh, I thought, well, you know, I do have a chance of being a poet because a poet you can do all by yourself. And then when I discovered that I had cancer and there was a question as to whether I was going to live or die, it turned out my roommate in college was a very talented musician. And we just kind of looked at each other and said, we need to start a band. And uh, the Little Wretches was the band I started when my survival was clear. I'd kind of cleared that two and a half years of chemo, and okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm here to to stay. And one thing I resolved when I had to face the fact, yeah, man, I could, I could not wake up tomorrow morning, and. I will not have done what I wanted to do with my life. I will only do what I believe in. I will never do what I don't believe in. I will only do what I want to do. And what I wanted to do was be a songwriter in a band. And my band is The Little Wretches. And I've been doing it since I was in my late 20s. I started the, started the band. We're great. You guys got to look at us up. So what is the genre of music? Well, we just won uh, in a an award, uh, we won the Josie Awards as multi-genre group of the year for 2021. So we have everything from folk to kind of post-punk. Uh, some people, they, they say, oh, we, we heard you were folk rock, but you some sound somewhere between the B-52s and the Clash. <laughs> the, so it depends on what instruments, you know, usually nowadays you just hear me and my guitar. And if you want to hear the, the little wretches, you have to look us up on the, on the internet. I'm out here in the Philadelphia area. Most of my musical colleagues are in the Western Pennsylvania. Stylistically across the map, I, I like to say if you could fit us in a box, uh, we would be world famous, but we don't fit in a box. All right. So take us back to the beginning of your cancer journey. 
Okay, well, this, you know, you might be able to tell by looking at me that I'm up there in years a little bit. So when I was, uh, I guess I was a sophomore in college and I had a summer job delivering pizzas. And it was, you know, it was a great job because I got to eat for free. And <laughs> that the, the, the pizza shop provided the car and, you know, I made all kinds of money with tips and I liked to drive. But every time I got in and out of the car, I felt like somebody was punching me in the stomach. And uh, then I found this, you know, and this is before people had cell phones and all of that, right? So sure. I find this l little lump in my groin. Like, hey, I don't think this is supposed to be here. This is kind of weird. I never noticed this before. That was on a Friday. And then by Monday, it had like tripled in size. And uh, a friend of my roommate said, well, you just go to the emergency room. You know, they, they, they can't, they can't turn you away. I didn't have a family doctor. I was kind of right. estranged from my family. So I went to the emergency room. Next thing you know, they're bringing in medical students to look at me and poke, poke me and prod me. And then a doctor comes in and says, well, we're going to admit you. and We're going to do a biopsy. Like what? You know, next thing you know, I mean, 24 hours later, I'd been operated on and I'm in my hospital room trying to call my friends. And everybody's in classes or at work. Wait, you were operated on in under 24 hours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this the sooner you know, the better. And then they did the biopsy and said, okay, uh, you have cancer. And so now we're going to do this lympho thing where they drip blue, they stick needles between your toes and drip blue dye and the dye goes through your lymph system. And then they do this big operation, you know, I don't know, eight hours, 10 hours where they take all your guts, sit them out on the table and go through and pick out all the little blue dots. And then they test each little blue dot to see if it's cancerous. And I had one positive lymph node and I was pretty young and healthy. And the doctors that I had at the time, this is uh, like 1980, a 19, you know, like 79, 80, the doctors I had at the time you know, we're on the cutting edge of the research and they're like, eh, don't worry, you're going to be fine. We have this new regimen of chemo that's like 99% successful. In the meantime, my college professors are calling my friends aside and giving them grief counseling books <laughs> because in their mind, what I have really? is terminal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was the hardest part for me about the whole experience is, uh, watching other people get on you know i was at a very crucial part of my life you know the whole world was opening up before me and now my life goes on hold and everybody else goes on with life as usual so i go from being like the center of attention people visiting in me in my hospital room every day to now life goes on they've got classes they've got jobs they've got other obligations and here i am and and the whole thing didn't even really hit me until I was kind of in the clear, you know, I was on like a two year chemotherapy thing. And when the chemotherapy back, <laughs> back up, okay. So you have surgery and you do chemo for two oh, oh, years. The, the creepiest thing about that too, is because I was so healthy. My doctors took a chance. They, they said, well, your, your blood work is clean right now. And we only found one positive lymph node. So there's a chance that we got it and you'll never have to deal this with this again. So you're gonna come in once a month for blood work and x-rays and 
who knows, we might be good. And so that was in May. Uh, and then in October, I went in, got my x-rays, and then they say, oh, uh, wait here. Wait a second, wait here. Say, we want to get a couple more shots. Turn this way, turn that way. Thinking, this isn't good. Have a seat. Your doctor wants to talk to you. And, you know, so I'm sitting there knowing that the, uh, this wasn't good. And then my, I see my walk doctor coming down the hall and says, well, we've just found a lump the size of a walnut on each of your lungs. Your blood work hasn't come in yet, but we're sure it's going to come back positive. So we want to make plans to admit you, and we're going to start you on chemotherapy as soon as you're admitted. And I cried like a baby for probably six hours, you know. Prior to that, that, that first sort of six months post-op, you had not had chemo. Now, the surgery had been pretty extreme, but I recovered from it and uh, I was looking forward to, you know, being able to another feather in my cap, look, look at another dragon I slew, you know, look, look, look what an overcomer I am. And, and then it's like, oh, no, the, 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 the big, the big dragon is waiting for you, you know, a few months down the road. So for people to understand, it was testicular cancer? Yes, yes. And you were and, 20. Yeah. And in fact, I was 19 when the whole thing started. And, you know, there, you don't want to know all the crazy stuff that's happened to me in my life. So while I was having chemo, my grandfather died, my mother died, all kinds of other stuff happened. So I did miss a few chemo sessions. So it, it stretched out to about two and a half years. And look, I could get get deep into the psychological trauma of it. No, but, uh, I no, I I want to. I want to help people understand because you know, testicular cancer, I believe, is one of the rare cancers, at least here in the U.S. It was it, then, yeah, it was yeah. then. I mean, I never heard of such a thing. Now, since then, uh, there was a wrestler, Jeff Blatnick, like a gold medalist or a bronze medalist in the Olympics. Since then, it, it's become a little bit uh, better known. But but it, you know, it was a weird thing, and and it was you know it was rare. But uh, and up till that point, you know, lymphatic cancer was pretty much, you know, if I'd have had doctors who weren't as young and modern or if I'd have gone to a different hospital or if I'd have grown up in a different city, who knows? Uh, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. The doctors were sharp, young guys who who knew. And in fact, the the regimen of chemo that I had was considered experimental at the time. You know, they got permission to administer it. And I had to sign that I understand that anything can happen. But they, they were pretty, after my first round of chemo, my, my blood work was clean. But their, their advice was, this is, you know, a two-year program. We have to stick to it. You know, it's not going to be pleasant, but we know the two-year program works. We can't risk cutting it off and saying, okay, you're in the clear. And then after that, they say, you know, you have five years. If it doesn't, if you don't have a remission in five years, consider yourself cured. And that was a long time ago. So I've lived longer post-cancer than I lived with it. One of the one of the strange things that, you know, the experience you have when I'd be going in for my monthly checkups or, you know, there were times where I'd be getting chemo once a week. And then there'd be times where I'd be getting it once a month. And I'd go into the, you know, it's an oncologist office. So everybody in there is either a doctor or a nurse or some, a cancer patient. Sure. 
And I, you could get to where you could see a certain kind of pallor in somebody's skin and say, oh, that's a person on chemo. I, I recognize that pallor. And what, what, you know, is, what did it look like? You know, help us really visualize. There's just a paleness that I, I, I can't describe it. I just recognize it. And, and you know, I have a, a songwriter colleague now who I think is in the clear or is, is like over the hump with, with her chemo. Uh, you know, her hair still growing back. But I remember seeing her and thinking, ooh, she looks sick to me. And then finding out that she was getting cancer treatments. Like, I knew it. I knew it. I recognized that. That's, um, that's crazy. So you said something, and I would need to play back the recording to know for sure, but you used an interesting adjective to describe your surgery, something like radical or what was the surgery? And I just am thinking of a testicular cancer survivor I know who is not able to have children. So did it have any impact on your ability to have kids? Yeah. Yeah. And it, you know, that had a big impact on my life as well. You know, I'm a, I work with at-risk kids. I think you read in my, by my bio, uh, I don't have any kids of my own. And I remember people telling me when I was younger that you're going to be one of those guys that has 17 kids. Like, well, as a matter of fact, I have zero. And the doctor's told me before the surgery, they said, you know, we're going to have to sever the nerve, you know, the message that tells your body to produce semen. We're going to have to sever that nerve. You're, it's not going to, nothing's going to feel different. You're not going to know anything, but you're probably not going to be able to father children. Now we don't know the long term. Uh, it might come back, but there's no way of knowing. But you understand that if we do this surgery, that's a likely consequence. And at the time, you know, I, like, hey, I just want to live. And then uh, later when I was married, trying to explain to my wife, you know, I was like, well, well, why can't we have kids? Like, we can have kids. You can have kids. I just can't be the father. So that kind of altered the course of my life, I guess. I didn't, I didn't know yeah. how uh, I love children. I work with children. I'm told I would be a great dad, but... Uh, I'm just a great teacher instead. So you said you were estranged from your family. Your professors thought you were going to die and they're giving grief counseling to your friends. What happens while you're still in treatment and you have chemo, whether it's once a month or once a week, what changed for you in your life? Because you did say things had changed and people had moved on. So what happened? First, you know, I tried to go on as though you know, nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to go on with life as usual. But, you know, I, I was used to being a pretty bright person. I think the chemo affected my thinking and maybe the trauma. I, I'm pretty sure looking back on it that I became depressed, but I just wasn't able to keep up with my classes. So I ended up, you know, taking off about a year and a half from the university and, uh, you know, try to play in a band, but even that just kept on getting darker and darker. You know, this was the era of punk rock and you could get away with being pretty dark, <laughs> but uh, it still wasn't, uh, you know, it was just horrible. I, I would, uh, I was living with other musicians. I would stay up all night writing. And then when I'd hear people going to work in the morning, then I'd fall asleep till about four o'clock in the afternoon. And I was able to collect welfare. So, you know, whenever I'd get the notice that my check was waiting at the bank, 
and I'd have to wake up at 3.30 and run down to the bank before the bank closed. So I could, you know, it was, it was just really degrading. And, and I, I came, came to accept it. And, uh, and then when the chemo ended, it took, uh, I don't know, maybe about six months for it to get out of my system. But, you know, I was doing other things as well as far as positive thinking and getting, preparing for the day that I was going to get even with God for giving me cancer. <laughs> You know? Oh, okay. So tell us something you were doing because, because well, I was just writing. I was just writing, and you know, I start. You mentioned you know dance. You know, at the university, I took ballet classes and I took theater classes. You know, I was like, okay, if I'm going to be a performer, I need need to be comfortable with my body, and I need need to be comfortable in front of an audience. Yeah. And you know, I could use some coaching because I'm not from a, a family of performers. And, you know, and I, I knew I have a little bit of a gift with the written word. So uh, that wasn't going to let me down. But my main, you know, I wanted to deliver my my content, deliver my stories face to face with an audience. If I can, you have to learn the ability to grab people's attention, uh, take them on sort of an up and down. So I was working on that. But, but the, the, the weirdest thing that happened for me. You know, I started keeping a dream journal and things. Now, this is going to sound like a bunch of hocus pocus. I I woke up morning just feeling good, and, and to that to the point, it's like, wow, I feel good. And then the next morning, it's like, wow, you know, I woke up yesterday feeling good, and I feel even better today. And I think that happened every day for about six months. And I think that was just the toxins leaving my body. And then another weird thing happened is, you know, because I was keeping a dream journal. I would dream about somebody that I hadn't seen in years, and then they would get on the same bus I was riding. Like, now how in the world does that happen? Uh, you know, so I almost had this, I, I felt like I could see around corners. And then th this all sort of happened in the spring, started happening in the spring. And I just noticed, you know, we're getting to the end of the summer. Now it's like August, September, and, I'm, and I realized, you know, I haven't been hit by a drop of rain probably since February. It stopped raining on me. That's not possible, is it? And then, so I'm riding a bus and it's pouring down rain. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is gonna be, I forgot what it was like to get rained on, but I'm gonna get rained on today. The bus stops, the doors open. You see the whoosh of water that rushes from the roof of the bus and splashes by. When I step off the bus, and it stopped raining. Now, now yes, that doesn't happen. That doesn't. I swear to God, it happened. Uh, you know, it was just, it was just uncanny. It's like my life came back to me, and, and uh, miraculous things were were happening. You know, just, just the sense of everything you're seeing. All of a sudden, it, it feels like you're seeing it for the first time again. Uh, it was like life, life came back in slow motion. And I sometimes I, I wish I could get that feeling back again. And, and also that 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 drive because you know I, I have this like fire in me that, that drives me that uh, once I knew that my life was mine and that I wasn't going to die, I I was furious furiously dr driven you know undeterrable. Every now and then I think, man, where did that energy? Well, man, I can't blame it on getting old. What advice, knowing what you know now, would you give your sixteen-year-old self? I, I, you know, I, I was I was raised well by my uh, by my family. My uh, 
you know, my grandparents were immigrants. They, they risked everything they had to come over across the ocean and come to the United States. For my family, hardships, I mean, we were just trained to believe, you know, we're kind of religious people that hardships, you're never going to be hit with something that you can't handle. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it's designed to make you stronger. Now, in, in you know, in the field of education, trauma theory is the big buzzword. But you look at who is debilitated by trauma and why are some people not debilitated by it? And the people who aren't debilitated by it are the ones who look at it. This was a test. I, I didn't die, so I must be here for a reason. What lesson can I learn from, from this ordeal that, that I've just survived? And so I think I already had that in me when I was 16. But I remember, you know, like the night before my big surgery, you know, I was like, okay, we're going to come into your hospital room about four o'clock in the morning. We're, we're going to administer the anesthesia. And next time you wake up, your whole life is going to be different. And I remember like laying in bed that night thinking, well, you know, I might never wake up again. And here I've been telling everybody. Anyone with you at all? I mean, were you alone in this hospital? Yeah, well, I, you know, I had my friends uh, from college, and uh, but my, you know, my family had pretty much disintegrated. Uh, all kinds of weird stuff came came out of it. My, my uh, you know, I, I had my family had disintegrated when you know a few years earlier, and I hadn't seen my, my mother had kind of gone into hiding because you know her relationship with my dad was kind of violent. So when my mom heard that I was in the, and my mom was a nurse, when my mom heard that I was in the hospital, that was it. She was with, with me, but she wasn't with me at the surgery when, when it was after the surgery, when she found out about it. And, and then, you know, I can only imagine how heartbroken she was because, yeah. you know, I was the apple of her eye. I was her favorite son, but my little brother ended up going to an alternative school down the street from the hospital. And since I couldn't eat when I was on chemo, he would come up and visit me at lunchtime and he would eat my lunches. <laughs> but years later, he got cancer. He had this lump, you know, in his neck and they scheduled him to go get a biopsy. And I, maybe he intuitively knew that he had what I had. And instead of going to the hospital to get the biopsy, he stole $2,000 from my dad, ran off to Atlantic City on a cocaine binge. And the next time we see him, everyone's like, oh, your brother looks so good. Look at how much weight he lost. And I'm like, oh, I know it. My brother is not looking good. Look how much weight he lost. My brother is a sick man. And then he ended up dying later that year of, of cancer. Because of his crazy lifestyle, they kept on trying to tell him that he had AIDS, but all the tests would come back negative until finally from Atlantic City, they came over to Philadelphia and he went to a real doctor instead of some shore doctor. And the doctor took one look at him and said, oh, I know what you have, but you're like pretty far gone. We'll try to treat it, but uh, you're too far gone. And even then, you know, th this is a weird story. So we're sort of when, when I was in the hospital after my surgery, you were talking about the, the thing with the reproductive system. Yeah. I heard my doctors, it's like they told me, they briefed me, but they were standing outside my hospital room talking about it. I think this was like creative dramatics. They were having this conversation amongst themselves for my benefit, sort of knowing that I was listening. And, uh, you know, well, he'll never be able to have children, you know, 
But we explained that to him. So my little brother went when he, we were visiting him in his hospital room, and he has his eyes closed, and everybody thinks he's sleeping. And my sister starts talking about making funeral plans. And I'm thinking- In his room? In his room. In his room while he's sleeping. Uh, she's, she's thinking he's knocked out, right? That he, he's, and I was thinking, matter. he's just too tired to open his eyes. Matter, he, right? right? And then, then he opens his eyes and says, it's a lost cause, isn't it? Oh. I was like, oh man, imagine having to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was bad, yeah, yeah, bad timing, bad timing. Oh. But you know, the, the, the truth is, none of us are going to live forever. We're all going to go sometime. And while we're here, we better make the most of it. And, and if anything, for those of us who survive, uh, that, that should be the lesson we take away from it is make, make the most of the time we have. So I absolutely know for me, the one thing that I kind of promised myself the night before my big surgery is if I get through this, I'm going to be true to what I believe and I will be uncompromising about it. I will never you know, bow to any kind of pressure. I'm going to do what I want 100% of the time. <laughs> So what is the one thing, Robert, you wish you had known at the very beginning of your cancer journey? From the learning process, I, I, again, I don't know that there's anything that I would have been open to hearing, mm. but, but just that, and, and I kind of already knew, I'm going to win this one. I wasn't made to die here, you know? I mean, I, that, that was my feeling, uh, you know, driven by a lot of anger. For a time, I became very self-centered. You know, it was like me against the world. You know, we met, talked about being distrustful. I wish I, I could have been made, maybe made aware of, you see how distrustful you're becoming and you see how nasty you're becoming. You see how, you know, insular you're becoming. That's not good. You know, now I did, I was able to come out the other side of that. I mean, I don't know what it's like for other people, uh, you know, for, in, in Pittsburgh, where I'm from, you know, the, the superstar hockey player, Mario Lemieux, you know, they made him a hero. Oh, Mario ha overcame cancer. He's a hero. Like, look, if you what if you have cancer, what else do you do but overcome it? You either <laughs> die of it or you survive it. It doesn't make you a hero. You just deal with it. But I think the depression for me, and I think it also happened with Mario Lemieux, like the depression hits you when it's over. Because when you're fighting it, you're just so you're in it, focused right? on yeah, fighting it. And yeah. then when you get to the top of the mountain, I was like, oh. Yeah. And then, then it takes about, took me about two years to kind of come back to life and, you know, rebuild. And, and, and then feel like everybody has a head start on me now. And not, now I got to catch up. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Oh, my. Uh, well, one, just on, just on the ground level, I would improve the bedside manner of the caregivers. I think they're overwhelmed and they have to work really hard. Quick question. Do you mean when you say caregivers, are you talking about family and friends who are taking care of the patient, or are you talking about providers and nurses? Nurses, medical technicians, the people that come in and, at three o'clock in the morning and draw your blood. For, for me, the most alienating thing was people who don't know me and don't my, know my name come in and wake me up in the middle of the night to take blood. And then 
if I didn't greet them with a smile, then <laughs> I'm the one with the problem. You know, oh, that patient has a bad attitude. Yeah, you know, I probably do. Uh, but still, you have no right to wake me up and stick a needle in me without asking me first. So, so one, just just that that kind of bedside manner. Okay, are you ready for the Thriver Rapid Fire questions? Ready or not, here they come, right? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Mountains. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Oh, how dare you! I know, I know, choose. right? <laughs> Especially for you. <laughs> oh my! Oh, how did you? If you had to make make a, if you had to put me in the impossible, Sophie's choice. How did you know those would be the three bands? But if I if, if I only have to go with one, I'm going with the Stones, the Rolling Stones. I knew it. Oh my gosh, yeah. I knew it. Like I was thinking yeah. about it in my head. I always try to kind of figure out where people yeah. are and knew it, knew it, knew it. Okay. What is one word that best describes you? Wretch. <laughs> okay, I have not heard that one before. <laughs> All right, before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? The last song I want to hear would be Every Grain of Sand by Bob Dylan. Do you know the song? I might have heard of it. Not a huge Dylan fan, but I'm sure I've heard of it. So. Well, it's, uh, it's it's not one of the songs that everybody knows, but it's uh, breathtakingly beautiful. Every hair is numbered like every grain of sand. Yeah. What about the last meal you want to eat? A nice salad with avocado and maybe some nuts and uh you know a lot of greens and balsamic vinaigrette dressing and maybe That's some so asparagus some, oh some God, asparagus so on there oh my god it's so healthy <laughs> the last person or people you want to see you know there's this lady walking the earth who thinks she's my ex-wife her name is rosa colucci and uh <laughs> if there was one, if the world was coming to an end and you could call on one person to save the world, you know, you would call on her. She, she would be the super, super superhero. She'd be the last person I'd want to see the final really? person. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hmm. Wow. There's, there's a story there. What about the last words you will speak? Thank you. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's better or worse now that people who get diagnosed with cancer today have Dr. Google, whereas when you were diagnosed, you didn't? Knowing how much you can obsess about things and second guess things, you know, I think all this information might just be more of a burden than anything else. Trust your doctors. You know, I mean, for for me, that's where it came. Came. You know, I had good doctors, and I just resolved this. I'm out of my league here. I trust them, and if they tell me to do something, I'm going to do it. And if they say, and if they say the decision is yours, but these are your options, I say, yeah, come on. <laughs> if, you, if you were me, what would you do? What? Right. Well, but this is your decision. You want? Yeah, I understand. It's my decision, but come on. They're so you're, scared of being sued. Now. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, my doctors weren't. In fact, you know, everybody knows, and this is going way back. 
that uh, marijuana was the best treatment for nausea for chemotherapy. And, you know, my, my doctors just came right in and said, look, we would be remiss if we didn't tell you this. And, you know, I've never, I've never taken a puff of anything in my life. My mother went and got some marijuana and ground it up into powder and I would sprinkle it on my toast and uh, it worked, you know, for the nausea. You know, this is going to sound corny, you know, but, you know, whatever your faith system is, turn to your sacred scriptures. That's what you need. That, that would be the one resource is, you know, turn, turn to the wisdom of the ages and, uh, you know, eternal wisdom. If you believe in such a thing, which I do, trust, trust what you've been taught. If people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way? Look up the little wretches on Facebook, YouTube, go to the internet. Amazon and, Music, can I add you to yeah, Amazon Music, yeah, Amazon awesome. Music, Spotify, Apple Music. We're we're everywhere. But you know, if you really love music, look up the little wretches. There's hours and hours of live footage of us oh, on cool. YouTube. And where did the name of the band come from? Well, okay, there's there's that like kind of biblical thing, Amazing Grace, you know, the saved a wretch like me. But but for real, there's a movie called The Four Hundred Blows, uh, Francois Truffaut. It's a movie about juvenile delinquents, you know, who were abandoned by their family. And there's a scene. Or so yeah, I'm watching it, you know, with, with me and future little wretches. We're in the movie theater, and it's got subtitles because it's French. And there's these kids that just rob somebody's house. And they're walking down the steps of a cathedral and a priest is walking up the steps of the cathedral. And the kids look at the priest and say, good morning, madam. You know, which is an insult to the priest who is not a madam at all. And he turns around and says, little wretch. And it comes up on <laughs> subtitle. And I saw a little wretch and I just turned to everybody. That's the name of my band. Oh my gosh. I yeah. love that story. Yeah. And it's funny how words don't necessarily translate, right? Because wretch is not a word that I don't think most people commonly use. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on and not only sharing your story, but just sharing your energy. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.